You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And today we have two guests. We are joined by Isaiah Thomas, who is a passionate community advocate, and Daryl Peace, who is with Slate 7. The so welcome to the show. The best business consultancy strategy company in the United States of America. Yes, all of that. <laughs> welcome, guys. So this is very new for us. We have never had two people at one time on the show, so I'm super excited. I'm also nervous and sweating a little bit under this hoodie, and so bear with us. But Our piss is dripping. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought you two would be the best people to have the conversation, just based on our previous conversations and your life experiences, your journeys to date, to talk about the politics of race and specifically colorism and what colorism is, what it means, how we're personally impacted by it. I know I have a certain level of privilege as a light-skinned biracial black woman, and my experiences are different than other people just based on pure color of the skin. And the conversation is really important for us to have as a whole, I think within black and brown communities, but also for allies and people that are learning about these issues to really understand some of the dynamics that they might not be exposed to otherwise. So before we kind of dive into the conversation, I think I'm the only person who does not know our guest. Seems like Katie and Isaiah go way back to like the sandbox here. So before we dive in, I'd love to give you guys time to just tell us a bit about your journey, um, some of your lived experiences, and why now is the time more than ever when we should be talking about the politics of race. So Isaiah, why don't we start with you? Okay, so my journey is... Um... I'm a black man, but uh, like Katie, I am biracial. My mother is white. My father is black. Uh, growing up, my father always made it a point to always remind me that I was a black man with a white mother and that I was not white. For the reason of not, uh, you, don't, you don't want to walk around with that expectation, you know, because there's what you think you are and there's how the world sees you. And you have to be aware of that. Um, so, you, you know, you grow up... Uh, seeing that, learning that. Uh, and then, you know, um, when you identify as a black man, you see the, uh, you see what we face as a people and then you realize how complex and how serious it is. It's, it can be extremely disheartening. And, uh, if you see, if you look at us right now, the position we're in, you know, with the, with the, uh, coronavirus, it's really impacting the black community more than most, uh, Black community is always at the front line of any type of major issue that happens in this country. And uh, it leaves us even more, it, as, as a group, it leaves us even more disenfranchised. I'm, uh, I was born and raised in Baltimore in a single, single parent household. Um, both my parents were, were black. Um, but at an early age, just going through, I was fortunate enough to be able to go through private school pretty much all my life. And it was abundantly clear that I didn't look like anybody else that I went to went to school with. You could feel it. It was palpable. Some of it may have been self-inflicted, but uh, for the most part, it was an external factor. 
that played a role in my life. I always felt that if I was more light or had light eyes, uh, more doors would have been open, um, not just from a professional level, but also just residential doors of my schoolmates. Like people would be more willing to say, hey, yeah, he could come over, have a sleepover or do, you know, whatever. So I'm not just talking physical doors, but also, uh, and I'm more of a, metaphorically speaking as well. And so it's important for us to talk about race because as we know, we have this, it's not even an undertone in, in, anymore, you know, with the systematic racism we have, but specifically talking about colorism, which is a subset of that, you know, the social stratification, if you will, if we can't within our own communities have eradicate the racism and colorism in our own communities, how do we expect other people of other races to be able to do the same thing? So I think it's very important for us to be talking about that now. Um, I was actually thinking as Daryl was giving his testimony. So I am a light-skinned Black woman. Both of my parents are Black, but I was raised by my mom in a single-parent household in Pittsburgh, which is a better city than Baltimore. I have to clarify that before we go any further. Wow. She just went there. She just went there. I'm a diehard Steelers fan, so it was was too Mm. easy. Um, But, yeah, I was raised in Pittsburgh. Starting in middle school, I received a scholarship to go to a private school, private all-girls school, which, as you can imagine, was predominantly white. Um, one of the few kids on scholarship, and I think there are about 44 kids in my class, and maybe 10 of us were people of color, and I say that directly because that includes not just Black people, but Asians and um, folks of Indian descent. So after that, I went on to college. I have two masters, all three from predominantly white institutions, and um, you know, it, I think when you were talking about your journey of how, you know, how do people see you? I feel like in many of those spaces, I always felt either I was too black for some of the white people or not black enough for some of my black friends. And I feel like that's been a constant struggle and tension for me of just something of figuring out how do I show up? But even as I work so hard to, you know, portray the image I want to portray, how do people see me? And what's the narrative they've created about me before I even have a chance to speak or share my story? And how do you overcome that? Decided to dive into some of these issues. My take or my experience has been, you know, I'm biracial, my mom is white, dad is black. I lived with my mom in white neighborhoods my whole life, but we moved around a lot. She was in the military and then started working for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so we were in a lot of different areas. And the one place that we lived that had the biggest impact on me racially was, shocker, Alabama. And so we were in Alabama for two years. And that's where I really experienced that whole you're not black enough for the black people and you're too, your skin is way too brown for the white people in Alabama. And this was really a time when I was there was late 90s or mid to late 90s. And they still in the homecoming court had the homecoming queen and the princesses in each grade, there had to be a white one and a black one. And I remember I ran for eighth grade princess and I won. And the principal literally called my mom and was like, hey, we have an issue here at the school. And my mom was like, what? Katie get in a fight? Like, what's going on? Is she alive? And the principal was like, well, we, you know, Katie won both sides for homecoming court. We need to know, do you want her to be the white one or the black one? And my mom was like, I can't believe this is what you're 
calling me about at work right now. And so just based on that and then my understanding that, you know, I was a teen mom. I graduated high school and had my daughter one month after graduation. And if I didn't have the resources that I had, I would very well be in a community with other people, not just white people, but people that look like me and were systematically put there. And I just recognized that very early on and became very ingrained and entrenched in those issues of disparities and what we as a society can do to help build upward mobility. That is a crazy story, Justin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I wish wow. I had like a tiara or something because I'd totally be wearing it right now. To jump right into it, though, why is addressing colorism important? And this is a, a very broad conversation. This is probably an eight-hour-long-plus conversation. But right now, given COVID, given the Black men that are being killed, why is this an important conversation to have? Well, colorism goes all the way back to slavery. You know what I mean? This is something that's always been around. You know, the like you're saying, like the whole um, light skin being, if you're a bit lighter, you might be accepted a little bit more than the darker complected. You know what I mean? Um, it just, it's something that's always, always, always been there, especially once you start adding, you know, interracial relationships in there, which adds a whole different dynamic into it. Um, it, ta- it speaks to assimilation as well. Uh, it, it, it's in and how we treat, cause it comes back to how we treat each other. You know, I couldn't imagine not being black enough. If someone told me I wasn't black enough. Um, well, let me rephrase it. I can, because I would, when I, when I was dating, I would have, I only approached black girls, but I, I would literally have black girls tell me like, Oh, I thought you only liked white girls. Or, or I would think you would only like white girls. I'm like, that's crazy. And I'm guessing because I'm light <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, so there's an automatic assumption that you look like you only like a certain type because of your skin. Um, and then how darker complected people are automatically maybe more villain or may feel more villainized or are more villainized than light skinned people. And it's hard. I'm not going to lie. As a light skinned black person, it can be hard to remember at times because I, I feel, hey, I'm black. I'm, you know. They can the cops could put me on the ground too, or they could put anyone else on the ground. But I have to remember there's levels to this, and that, that I think it's hard. I think that could be hard to remember sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I was telling my husband what we were going to talk about tonight, and I was like, "We're talking about colorism," and he's like, "Okay," and I was like, "Can you say more? Like, do you have thoughts on this?" And he was like, "It's real," and I was like, "I I just need a little extra. Like, just give me something." <laughs> and my husband is a tall, muscular. 6'5", black man, and he was saying, he's like, well, if you need me to break it down for you, if somebody was walking through our neighborhood who was your color, he's like, folks might be suspicious, they might call the police, but that's about it. He's like, if I'm walking through, he's like, they're calling the police, the dogs, SWAT, everybody, he's like, a whole secret neighborhood force, he's like, it's real, he's like, what people see when they see me is very different than when they see you. He's like, and I'm sure they probably have questions as to like how I even ended up with you. And I was like, damn. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's, like, <laughs> That's a lot. But it's, it's true. Um, yeah. And I think even going to that whole, you look like you date a person of a certain race, that that assumption is there. Daryl, I know you are nodding your head. What are your What is your take on that? Yeah, you know, I, I just first wanted to point out, though, that, you know, colorism is just, it's not unique to the black community either, right? I mean, if you look at, you know, the Asian, the Asian community, the Latin community, yep. 
Caribbean community, um, any community, right? Because if you're associated with dark skin, that means you are blue collar, you worked in the field, your family derived from working in the field, et cetera. So obviously for us, I think, you know, the colorism is just an ugly derivative of slavery for the black community here in the United States. But worldwide, colorism is not just unique to us. I mean, it really is in almost every single ethnicity. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's not something that's unique. No, thank you. To, to, to us, right? Um, right. But, but yeah, but, you know, that being said, um, yeah, I, I, you, you get that all the time about what your dating preferences um, may be, uh, what your athletic ability may be, what your dancing ability may be. It's crazy labels that get put on you based on, you know, the color of your skin, which is absolutely absurd. But we fall right in, right into it, right? It's reinforced in media every day, every every time we, we you know you look at a magazine, you turn on a TV ad, you turn on a TV, et cetera. Even shows that we consider to be black shows, shows for us, right? If you look at Martin, look at the color of Gina, right? Look at you know the Cosby Show, look at Lisa Bonet. So these shows are shows for us, and yet even within that, you can still pick out the colorism. And frankly, it's probably just unconscious at this point yeah. because it's been this constant bombardment on everywhere you turn whether it's societal um whether it's your peers whether it's the media it's this constant bombardment and so eventually you just you succumb and there's even these i went to a talk one time at like this equity conference and they did an exercise with the small group breakouts where they had us sit in a circle based on the color of our skin and just to see the spectrum to where the darkest person in the room was an Indian man. And his experiences were so much different than the lightest skinned black man. And so it's powerful. It's not just purely the color of our skin. There are all these other undertones and all these other factors. And it, it impacts or people use that in how they deliver services or, again, implicit bias. And when people look at you, what their assumptions are based on TV based on what they hear on the radio or whatever that might be. And it's just so it's so deep and it's just impacting our community in such a maybe negative way. But 100%. we have to address it. And I feel like that's yeah. it's one of the factors that we have to address. And I don't want to put it and be like, hey, people of color have to this is what you have to do, shame or whatever. But at the same time it's like we need to if we're asking other people to look at racism and racist policies and racist practices we need to look at this as well to be impactful and to move the needle forward. I was reading, um, so I just had my son who's now a month old. And one of the things I asked for were a lot of books um, that have, you know, people of color who are the hero or the protagonist. And I got this book and it's by Tay Diggs, who I did not know was also an author, um, but it's called Chocolate Me. And in the story, there's a little boy and he has, dark brown skin and in the beginning of the book kids are asking him questions like why is your skin that color why is your hair that texture why is your nose that shape and so he kind of shrinks and wants to hide who he is and it's not until he goes home to his mom and ask him like you know what's the matter with me ask his mom what's the matter with me and she starts talking to him about how beautiful he is because of his skin and it just reminded me like if we're not talking about it if we're not celebrating the beauty in each of our skin tones, in each of the ways in which we show up and we're seen in this world, then I think we end up having a whole generation of 
couple um, of kids or even some of us who have been impacted in the ways we've talked about in our stories who never know how beautiful they are and don't realize like just how amazing their blackness is. So silencing it doesn't help anybody. No, it's it's accepting that, like you said, it's, it's accepting that we do all come in different shades. Um, I have a, I have uh, two friends that had a, a baby girl, and the girl, the the, the uh, my friend that she was pregnant, she's uh, about the same complexion as me. Um, her husband is, uh, he's more brown skin, and when they had their daughter, she came out really. I don't want to like she wasn't albino. But I, it was definitely like she was lighter than both of them, and it kind of like I I I had to do a second look. Like I, I've never seen anything like that before, you know. And so of course you have recessive traits that kick in. And they even said they've gotten crazy looks when they go out in public from people mm-hmm. like, well, you know, I think people have gone out their way. Like is she adopted or something like that? You know what I mean? I remember when I was young, I would go to dinner with my mom. And people would ask if we were together or separate. And I'm like, I'm like 12 years old here. Like, how am I going to pay for dinner? And so it's like people's brains don't even, it's ridiculous. And at the same same time now, you have all these people who are posting, not necessarily within, I think, some of our friend groups, but others who are posting, well, I don't see color. That's yes. Let's talk about that. Well, I have my opinions, but I feel like I've been talking about Well, whoever wants to talk, we need to talk about that. Well, I think we've all graduated. That's that's so like 90s, right? I don't see color. No, it's very too... No, it's not. I feel like people have... I think as far as black people go, I think black people have graduated. I think a lot of black people are starting to graduate to new ways of thinking of, what do you mean you don't see color? You mean you don't recognize me as a black man? You don't recognize my issues I'm going through? Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. There are certain things that I feel like, I, 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 well, let me speak for myself. There are certain things that like probably, probably within the past 10 years, you know, you're forced to kind of wake up to and deal with, you know, because I feel like for me during the 90s, early 2000s, you start living this life of, we're in post-racial America. You know what I mean? We're not in that anymore. Everything is better. And then, you know, the information between life experience and learning more information, you're forced to face the facts of, no, 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 this is real. That, no, not seeing race, when they say that, that's actually the, a bigger problem than seeing race. It's I love growth that I'm seeing all more videos and postings from white people that are acknowledging that, though. I mean, Daryl, you sent me... One today from a white police officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, words matter. Words really matter. And um, so for someone to say that and believe that, then they're delusional if they say that they don't see color. I think maybe what they want to say is maybe that they don't overtly uh, distinguish or something along those lines to say, like, I recognize that you and you are a different hue. How can you not, right? But despite that, Despite those differences, I'm not going to treat you any differently. And I think that's the point that needs to be that needs to be hammered home. And that's whether it's in the black community or outside the black community, whatever, we all need to embrace that aspect of it and not just say as a blanket statement, oh, I don't I don't see color. And it is, I think, dismissive. And I was in Atlanta and shopping for Christmas with my mom. And it was me, my mom, my daughter, my daughter's fair skin. Her dad is black, but she looks white, has blue eyes, 
fine hair. I was being followed around. I took off a, a hoodie and was trying on like a zip up coat or something. And I kept be like, this one employee was right there. I turned around, she's right there. And I was like, I'm not going to steal anything. I promise you. And so I go to check out and I asked the lady that was checking me out. I was like, so does she always follow everybody around or just the black people? And she was speechless. And she's like, I don't know. I don't see color. And I was like, I do because I'm brown and that's my mom and she's white and that's my daughter. And it's like, I don't really know what color she is right now, but she's brown, a, a shade of brown as well. But it's important because just like you said, it, to say I don't see color, you're dismissing the issues and the impacts of color for that person's experience. You're dismissing, again, any implicit bias that you might bring to the table when you saw them, that what you assumed they, you know, their skin color meant a certain career, a certain occupation or the way that they talked or what their name was. So there are a lot of assumptions that can be very detrimental to people's health, their quality of life, their well-being, just by dismissing the color piece. Right. You're, it's almost in some ways like you're erasing, you're using your privilege and your perspective to erase a piece of me. And like my skin color shapes many of my experiences in good ways that I'm super excited about and in not so good ways, but that is all part of who I am. So I think to Daryl's point, if you're trying to see beyond that and not judge me for that, in order for you to fully accept me as a person, you need that whole story and dismissive statements like that take away a part of my story in a way that I feel is, is not fair. I was going to say, could we even talk about the mental health aspects of this? Yes. Because it weighs on you. It weighs on you, especially as a child. Oh, if you're a light-skinned, I've had countless female friends say, you know, if they're light-skinned, how much mental anguish they received because of their skin color, because they had a better grain of hair, et cetera. And then vice versa, I would hear from the dark-skinned girls, in elementary school saying, you know, they would physically get assaulted or what have you from, from the light skin girl. So there's this constant battle that sometimes could actually enter the physical realm. And mentally, you carry that all the way through through your lifetime. And that in and of itself weighs on you. And there's a there's a mental component to it. And, and sometimes we see it manifest in the most horrific ways as far as I'm concerned because people are going so far as to, to skin bleach. Yep. Yeah. Isaiah, were you going to say something? Well, no. Just going back to um, when they don't speaking to the, the the point of not seeing color. When white people say that to me, it's that wanting to stay neutral. You know what I mean? I want to stay in this neutral area where I don't have to address this issue. I don't have to address my family members or friends who are racist. I don't see race. Because for them, if they if they choose to step on that side where they understand what's going on, you're messing up their whole dynamic of family and friends. And yeah. so, unfortunately, we're the only ones left with that discomfort. Um, but I do the the the, the um, I can I've definitely seen the effect, the mental health effects of people that have to live with the uh, the colorisms of from that that are that come from childhood. That mm -hmm. is real. Um, and uh, I have. A friend of mine, she's Indian, and the stuff she would tell me that her and her sisters would have to go through as kids, where don't go outside, don't do this, it still affects her to this day. You know what I mean? And like when she told me that, I was in complete awe. I, I had no idea. You know what I mean? I'm like, wow. So they, they would say, don't stay outside too long because you don't. He's like, yeah, that, that was huge. I had no. So wait, idea. her her yeah. parents were telling her not to stay outside to yeah, 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 yeah. Like the I had a friend like, like that. Yeah, the yeah. parents are telling you, 
they'll, they'll get the creams out and they'll tell the kids don't stay outside too long or whatever. Like if you don't oh, wow. want to be hard. You know yeah, I had a friend in uh, undergrad was like that, man. Like she said that to me, and my my jaw dropped to the floor because that was the first I ever heard of that. Was mm-hmm. you know her father was uh, was Haitian, her mother was uh, from Nicaragua, and uh, you know she was fair skin, and she said she could not go outside and play because her mom said you cannot get dark. If you get dark, you're going to be labeled, and you're not going to have success and in carry life. And so that she with made, you. and you carry that with oh, you. That my as a kid. To the point where you believe it. You have to believe yeah. it as a child saying, well, I have to be better than people that um, that are darker than me, right? right? Because my mom said so, first of all. So that's your first reinforcement. And right. then how society actually treats you is your second reinforcement. Yeah. And so you really yeah. walk around thinking, I am better than the next the next one. Right. And like, and like Daryl said, it's so... I mean, I'm not saying it's not prevalent in the African American community, but in a lot of other a lot of other cultures, it's so much more out there. As you know, if you go to like, you know, any like Puerto Ricans or Dominicans, mm-hmm. and it, it's so much. There's so much out there, more out there. With no, no, you're dark, you're ugly, you're below us, and they're not afraid to tell you. Where with us, it's a little more uh, discreet. It's not as it's it's not as in your face. You know what I mean? It's just more, you know, if you watch an entertainment, you watch, you watch a music video, you know, you just see the light skin girl all the time in the video. Or you just see them as far as the leading lady on the TV show. And so the, the black girls here in America, when they're looking for someone to identify with, they're not seeing that leading black lady on TV. That's why everyone loves the original uh, Vivian Banks. You had this beautiful dark yes. skin black woman, and it's funny. Like even before the hype of it all, I always felt so she was so motherly. My mom's white, and I connected to her as a mother to my mom. You know what I'm saying? Like there was a connection there, and it was a beautiful thing to see. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to go on the fresh prints. I know there was a whole bunch of issues with that, but it was just amazing to see a dark skinned woman just have that lead and be that powerful and, and, and be loving and you know all that all that good stuff for me and my experience in my family I don't think as a child I never like you talked about this earlier words matter Carol and I feel like I don't think I understood the power of those words when I was younger now I get it much more so I think about my cousins I have a lot of family that lives down south and my cousins are darker than me. And folks in my family used to call them Smokey, and they would call me Light Bright. And, like, as a kid, I just, I'm like, oh, that's their nickname. This one's my nickname. Yeah. And, like, we never saw anything of it. Like, we still use those nicknames. But... Yeah, it's a problem. And I feel, I'm like, is anybody else, like... Thinking, thinking about this, but then I also had this internal battle with myself. It's like, oh, great, here's the light bright, judging everybody else, coming out with, we shouldn't say this or we shouldn't do this and all of these things. But I've never thought about the fact that, you know, if I were to, you know, what does that mean? Like, what are the things I'm carrying around because of those nicknames? What are the things my cousins are carrying around? When you add on, like, all the other layers of what they've achieved, what I've achieved, who's doing what, who hasn't done what, who's where in life, who's not maybe where they should be. Like, what does that look like? And how much of that goes back to the nicknames and the words that we were called as children in a way that I would argue, I don't think my family meant in a harmful way. I think they, it was just like these joking little nicknames as a way to tell all those little kids apart. 
But again, it goes to you carry that with you. And when people I was on a or listened to a town hall, I want to say Ayanna Presley said it when she was like, people are so quick to be like, oh, you're pulling the race card. You're pulling the race card. And she was like, I'm not pulling the race card. It's called a data sheet. Like the data is saying this. And when we talk about racism and what that looks like, we there's data behind it. There's not so much the data behind the impacts of people's bias for, for people's skin color. And so within that, when you break it down even more, whether it's microaggressions, people, I've been in meetings where people are like, your hair's too big. Can, don't sit in front of me. Your hair's too big. What am I supposed to do about my hair? Like, I wanted to wear my hair out, right? So just certain those small things that just add to us and going to the mental health piece NPR had this study, and it was basically looking at life expectancy. And same education, same income bracket, whatever, a white woman will live longer than a black woman. And they were really diving deep to see why is that. And what they uncovered was that it's the microaggressions and that stress of racism and those interactions that you have every single day that chip away and chip away and chip away at your health that we just aren't conscious of anymore. I want to talk about like your both experience as a black mm-hmm. male. So as a light skinned black male, but you're still black and as a brown skinned black male, you know, what are, what are, what have been your life experiences when you leave your house? Um, there is a high level of anxiety as soon as I cross the threshold on my front door, because I have no idea what that day has in store for me. And I'm not talking on a professional level in the meetings that I have on my agenda or on my calendar. I have no idea what can happen to me on my way to work, on my way to happy hour, on my way to anything. And, you know, you know, Chris Rock had this bit one time when he was like, oh, the police thought, had him so riled up that he thought he stole his own car, right? (laughs) And but it's real. It's like when you see a cop, I don't know about anybody else, but when I see a cop, particularly in, in Northern Virginia, it's like, am I doing something wrong? And I know I'm not, but I shouldn't even have to ask myself that question. But I do, right? And like, I better just chill. I better just do this. I better do that. No sub movements, no this. No, don't give anybody a reason. That's not a way to go through life. It really is not. And, but that's, that's what you carry with you. That's what you carry on your shoulders every day with this complexion. I feel as though, and I could be completely wrong, but if I were lighter, I might get passed over, right? But right now, I feel like I am a prime target to get dragged out of my car and maybe have my life ended unnecessarily. For me personally, I, don't, I wouldn't say I walk around with a level of anxiety but definitely a level of awareness of my surroundings, of um, making that, that, that subconscious thought of make sure you don't overthreat. Make sure you're staying within the lines of whatever, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing. Maintain your, you know, maintain whatever level of humanity or whatever you want to call it, you know, awareness of what's going on. That's that, you know, whether it's anxiety or an awareness that no one else has to worry about, it's still something that weighs them because, like I said, non, you know, whites don't necessarily walk out the house and they're not thinking like, okay, I got to make sure I don't pose a threat as a white male today, you know? So as a black man, I got to make sure, like, I didn't realize, like, I would, when I was 
was younger, I would go out my way. I, I mean, I, I acknowledge everyone who walks past me, whether I know them or if I don't. I think that's just a, a human thing. But there was that subconscious thought to like wait to white people, make sure white people saw I wave to them. So, hey, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> I'm not what you think you saw on television. Now I don't do that so much anymore because a person is going to believe what they want to believe. Now it's more of a, you know, I got to make sure I save, can save my life if need be. You know what I mean? So that, I, I yeah, that's my experience as a black man. I feel like we've raised a lot in this conversation and was just, you know, something Katie and I want to be able to do with this podcast is really move people to action. And I think in this case, action might be having a deeper conversation with themselves or with others in their circle. So I just wanted to hear from folks, like what are some of the takeaways you would want people to have from this conversation or what would you encourage folks to to do next who might be listening? I think with, you know, I think with anything in terms of affecting change, it always starts at the bottom. So it always starts at the grassroots. So to me, the grassroots in this case is your home. Like you said, if you don't celebrate your skin tone at home, um, parents have to be, extremely aware of what they say, how they say it, and everything to their children, because the children are just soaking it up like sponges, right? Whether they realize it or not, whether you're realizing you're even emanating this and your children are receiving that, you have to be very purposeful and intentional about teaching your children that your skin tone, whatever it may be, wherever it falls on the color spectrum, is beautiful and it should be celebrated and that needs to be reinforced in every aspect possible and as much as possible. As, as for individuals and adults, it's really just a matter of, of, of introspection, right? Saying, well, why am I, well, how am I treating people who don't look like me? Especially folks who are falling in the same socioeconomic racial class that I am. How am I going to change my behavior accordingly, right, in order to combat this? Um, I think if we at least do it on an individual issue, if we all do it on an individual issue, then collectively we're, we're solving the problem. I agree with Daryl wholeheartedly. And um, I, I was going to bring up looking inside, just looking internally at whatever uh, subconscious beliefs or just maybe not beliefs, but just ways you have of automatically thinking about situations when it comes to people, you know, of different complexions, whether dark skin, light skin, whatever, and, and wonder, you know, where does this come from? Is this fair? Am I, am, how am I, how am I dealing with this? Is, is this a prejudice? You know, looking internally and, and seeing, well, why do I feel the way, feel this way? You know what I mean? A lot of times we're programmed through entertainment or conversation or how we were raised to be certain ways that aren't the healthiest, you know? So it comes a point that you that, 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 that self-reflection has to come into play to say, wait a minute, am I falling into this stereotype or am I falling into this just because everyone else is saying it when we know it's wrong? You know, so that's, that's my And it's important it. when we talk about race in general, it's very easy to want to defend yourself and to say, oh, no, I, I'm, I said that because of this or I, I didn't mean that. So therefore, I'm going to shut down and to be able to say, it's not an attack, right? I've said things that have been hurtful to people before based on skin color, just based on what I had heard when I was younger or you know the conversations I was exposed to. And I had to learn and then apologize, but I came from it as I got older from a place of teach me, 
right? Explain to me your culture because there's even a different culture and this is a whole separate conversation we can say for another time, but to really separate Africans, people coming from Africa versus African-Americans and the opportunities, especially in higher education of what Africans have versus African-Americans. And so it's just powerful to, to be aware of, like you said, Isaiah, where you're coming from and what your own personal bias might be and ask the questions. Teach me. If, I, if, I, if it was uncomfortable for me, you know it has to be uncomfortable for the person on the receiving end. And so how can we come to this conversation as a place of understanding and compassion and then working together to move forward? But I think the key to all of that, Katie, and I don't disagree with you, but the key is that individual needs to be one, willing, and two, receptive. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have those two ingredients, no matter what you say, it's just going to bounce off of them, right? And so it becomes a fruitless conversation because they're not ready to hear it and they're not going to receive it. Right. Because I feel like some of the power in these conversations is in those uncomfortable moments and really wrestling with that uncomfortable feeling and sitting there until you can have some of these difficult conversations. And if you're not willing to do that and you're not receptive or open to what comes out of that, you just end up stuck. Right. And uh, usually a real conversation leads to somebody feeling attacked, even if you're not attacking them. You're just you can literally state a fact. You can literally state data, as Katie was talking about, and a person will still feel attacked. So and like Daryl said, it's trying to find that. Well, how do we get people to be receptive of information? You know, uh, that makes them uncomfortable. That takes them out of their comfort zone, because only then do we actually grow. But see, I think that's what, that's important because that's where words matter, demeanor matters. And I think right now debate is a lost art for everybody. We don't know how to debate mm-hmm. each other anymore. Civility is gone. As soon as someone raises their voice or throws an expletive in, that puts anybody on the defensive and you might as well forget mm-hmm. it. It's no longer a conversation. It's just two soliloquies just going back and forth and you're never going to get anywhere. So it's how do we communicate with each other where we both feel comfortable even though we may be on our polar opposites on, on how we feel right because as long as you feel comfortable you're going to stay in the conversation so i think we have to learn how to engage one another in civility in order to actually move the conversation forward i'm curious if either of you have thoughts on what that looks like in a digital and virtual world like i think part of the reason why we're so bad at debate now is because i never have to actually see you i can go on twitter or i can go on facebook i can type a few characters i can put out what i want to say and then if i don't like you i can say a lot more i can say hurtful things and then i can block you and never have to deal with it And I think now that we are physically distant from people and we don't have to have a lot of these face-to-face conversations, like what are some ways or some thoughts as to how we can be, I mean, maybe. Wait, I muted you. Oh, no. I don't know what I did. Here goes the civility. Yep. Oh, okay. Civility out the window. <laughs> civility. I totally the accidentally muted you. Muted. In the middle of my beautiful speech. Oh, but it was very I was appropriate. Too, like. It was very appropriate because that's what people do on social media. Great. Now she's going to be defensive, Katie. Thank I you. Know. I'm never okay. sharing okay. my thoughts again. Please. Yeah. Uh, so we lost you somewhere. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 
I'm totally keeping that. He was freestyling too. She didn't even know. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. Wait, what was the last thing you heard? It was a great question. I I think we got the gist of it though. Is how do we how do we gauge each other when we're already distant and it's so easy to hide behind your words? It's so easy to hide behind 240 characters. Is how do you? have that level of engagement and that's a great question and I, I don't even know I'm, I'm actually kind of stuck on that because I, I really don't know um in but it's my a great opinion, question in my opinion I feel like most conversations online if you know once you once you get that long 200 uh thread thick comment going a lot of times you see it, it, it goes left conversations get points get missed there's nothing really there. I don't really think it can happen on there, um, on that level. It's funny. I have an opportunity, which I haven't used yet, because I don't know if I'm ready for this level of uncomfort. Being half white, I have a, I, you know, I have a family that's white. They don't come from the part of Jersey that me and Katie are from. This is upper class white people that, you know, they just, you know, they went to Disney World every year for vacation growing up. You know what I'm saying? They're kind of they're completely out of touch and not to say they're bad people or anything like that, but it's like they're they're not really aware of any of this. And where my opportunity comes into play is like, hey, let's sit down and have a conversation with them, with them. you know what I mean? Because that's the closest thing to me. I, I for me personally, that's how I look at it, because of the, the dynamic of my family. If you have access to that, to people that you think that you can put in a comfortable position where they can be somewhat receptive. You know, you don't want to go full throttle on them all the way, but still like, hey, what do you feel about this? Did you see what happened? You know, and just go from there. And you have to, the one thing I, for me personally, I have to be careful with because it's not just a topic for me. It is an emotional connection. I have to be, I have to check my emotions when someone is kind of like, well, I don't see it as a problem because of X, Y, and Z. It's important we are socialized to be one side or the other and to not take on the other side's opinion or to even under try to understand it. But I feel like we just get more and more, I guess, siloed in our thinking because we hang around the same people, we have the same conversations, we surround ourselves with the news and everything else that just gets us one-sided where we're not even open to hearing or trying to understand the other side. I think this is back earlier we were talking about erasing people's stories. I think when we don't take the time to do that understanding, like we have no context, no idea where those beliefs came from. And that makes it even harder to have a real conversation, a debate, a difficult conversation, whatever it is we want to call it, um, because we actually don't know where they're coming from. And I know that there are some, I've had this back and forth with friends of mine who are like, well, why is it my responsibility to try and understand where somebody else is coming from? Like, I've been through so much. I'm tired of trying to have to sympathize or pity or, you know, coddle what I'm going to say to make someone else feel better. I personally, that's not my approach. It's not how things work for me. I don't know how well that's worked for them. But I think for me, I've always had a much better conversation when I've been able to take the time to try and ask some of those questions and be curious about what led you to this decision and or this opinion and what are some things that maybe we can talk about to help you then understand mine and why I feel the way I feel. I was just going to try to answer the question now. I think I actually have my answer. And I think the answer really is um, social media is just the wrong medium. It's the wrong form, right? Because there is no form of words 
no narrative that you can put, especially in 240 characters, is going to be this panacea that's going to magically change everybody's attitude, disposition, what have you, right? It's just not. And human interaction is where you're going to get that empathy. Because once you become empathetic, that's when you start to become willing, and that's when you start to become receptive. And so it's really that interactive void of human interaction allows for the vitriol that we see on, on social media, which is not constructive. Well, the, the, what I find a lot of times with the Black experience uh, predominantly is the idea of empathizing with racists and sympathizing with racists. Right. It's like, wait a minute, look at every, like, it's it, it's frustrating, which is understandable, it's completely frustrating when you look at everything that's happening. But it's funny, once you actually take the time, I, I, I read, um, uh, White Rage and um, the New Jim Crow, and both touch on how poor whites have been affected by racism, so to speak, and how the game was played to keep poor whites where they were at, just to keep us in check, and how they did, how the the, the powers that be um, stopped us from working together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh wow! And then when you get in their ear and you're they vilified us. You know, there, there was a, you know, there, there, there's been a forever campaign to vilify us. You know what I mean? And when you have people, when you take away their education and their ability to think, you have to remember that when you're speaking to them. And it's like, well, wait a minute, they do have real problems. You know, these poor white people, yeah, they, they have their white <laughs> which gives them a they, they have the same problems as us. That's the thing I can never give right. them, right? It's like these the same ones who are these Trump thumpers. And I'm like, you have the exact same problems as us. In fact, by numbers, you're on welfare more than we are as black people. <laughs> so let's just be real, right? So you're receiving True. all this subsidization from the government, but yet you want to say, little government, go down with big government, whatever. Well, that means you, dummy. Like, it doesn't make any (laughs) sense. And the only difference between us and them is our hue. And between that, but they carry that. And they'll still say, I am better than you. From a social economic standpoint, we are equal in every single way, except for our color. Therefore, I am better than you. Well, well, what's the the same goal? You You take the most uneducated white person and make him feel like he's better than the most educated black man. And yeah. that has been the story. That's been the story for the past 400 years. The elite whites gave the poor whites someone to vilify and be scared of. First it was blacks. Now it's immigrants. All those Mexicans, they're coming to get you. They're coming to get your jobs. Like, you know, everyone's everyone's afraid of immigrants coming to the country and taking their jobs, not understanding these immigrants aren't taking the jobs that are actually worth something. The ones that are actually taking something that works on you don't qualify for. You know what I mean? But no goes- one wants, I would say, but they don't want to hear that. Like my wife, like I, I tell Katie this all the time, I think my wife graduated with her master's in IT. When we went to the graduation, like 90% of the people that graduated were Indian. It was crazy. I was like, wow. And then when you find out they take these jobs, either go back to their countries or they get the jobs here. And Americans are like, well, I just should get the job because I should get the job. Like, bro, like, you're not even fighting for inflation. You're not even fighting for the raise in, in uh, wages. You just want to get mad at the Mexican. Like, it's crazy when you really look at that. But you have to understand this is passed down generation to generation to generation. And coming full circle, that's that same engineering that created colorism from way back when in every society and every culture 
that it has been engineered that they put us against each other based on the color right. of our skin and our Correct. skin tone. And so getting over that, it's systemic, it's institutional, it's systematic, and it's not that us having this conversation is going to solve the problem. It's not saying if we start talking about it for the next six months, it's going to solve the problem. But for the people who are allies to understand this is a real dynamic in our communities to say, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Not every black person has the same experience. And two, for the black and brown communities to say, let's start addressing this. And it's going to be uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable to even have this as a topic right now, right? I was like, oh, I don't know. It's making me uncomfortable. So therefore, it's a good thing that we should probably be talking about it because everybody gets uncomfortable when we talk about it. And I'm right. uncomfortable in the, the landscape of things and that you don't want to offend somebody. I'm sure we've offended plenty of people just having this conversation, somebody's going to right. take offense to something we said, and that's okay. They're entitled to that. And I want them right. to have a viewpoint and have a say. Right. I mean, when you look at this conversation, like to me, and I, I'm not, this, this isn't like a shot at y'all, but you got to understand when black, if and when black women hear this, it's going to be, why did they have a black woman on there? Well, I was already thinking because I want to have a part two uh, and bring sorry, two black skin. women. I let, me, let me rephrase that. A dark skinned black woman. I apologize. But um, I want to no, know, I was thinking I want to have a part, like a second follow up to this with other black women besides Light Bright over here and uh, <laughs> myself. <laughs> Good one, but... Thanks for <laughs> right. Thanks Those for perpetuating the problem. <laughs> first, you mute her. I know I'm such a horrible person. There's a lot of underlying things happening here. Childhood yes. issues, like God. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no. It, but what's funny about it, like we were, I was, I'm in a group on, on Facebook, and you know, everyone's always talking. Every time something like situation in Minneapolis happens, like, well, what do we do? What do we do? Do we protest? Do we this? Do we get our guns and go shoot everyone? And I'm like, no, you got to, we actually have to create allies and we have to stop having conversations with each other, with just each other about it. I'm not afraid to have a conversation like this with black people, even if, because I understand, even though I understand that someone who's darker complected to me might have a little bit of issue with anything I'm saying. And I will be very empathetic to that because mm -hmm. I have to understand they, that person has a completely different walk of life than me. Me and Daryl just our conversation. He says he walked out because it because he's dark complected. He probably walked out with more anxiety than I do. You know what I mean? I do understand that my light skin does probably come off as being t to white people. Oh, he might be a little friendly just because I'm light skin. You know what I mean? So there's there there, there is a little more empathy in the black community. It's when you choose to have the the, the conversations. Let's sit down with like I said, my 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 family, the whites who don't hang out with any blacks. Like, hey, let's have this conversation. We all recognize there's a problem, but we got to have a real conversation about what's going on. Yeah. Um, I met a girl, I never forget, I met when I was deployed in 2018 in Niger, I met a girl, a white girl, and I'll never forget. She was like, I hated white people until I got to high school because I never met a white person, only because of what my father told me. And it's funny. I felt like she felt the need to tell this to every black person she met, like she was so sorry for feeling like this. And it wasn't until she was able to step outside that comfort zone of home to actually grow and 
be comfortable with having relationships outside of only the white people she was. I think if we say it again, um, the key message from here is that we just got to keep having the conversation. And I know we're only scratching the surface and could probably keep going for another hour. I just want to thank you guys for being on the show with us, having the conversation, creating space, being so candid and vulnerable and opening yourselves up to explore these issues with Katie and I. I can guarantee you this is only the beginning. As Katie said, there'll probably be a part two and then maybe a reunion episode with everybody. So. Reunion episode. Yes, yeah. it'll be, it'll be just like good. Bravo. She's and a visionary. Housewives. She's a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Bye. Take care. Thanks. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, that was a lot. I feel like we were kind of all over the place, but it's very appropriate in terms of the colorism conversation because it can go all over the place. Right. I think one of the things that was very clear from that conversation um, is that we each have our own unique perspective and experience with these issues. And I think as a result, if we're truly listening to one another, the conversation is going to take us in many different directions because our stories and our experiences have. And that's the key is listening and understanding that we all have different perspectives. I think even yours and Daryl's private school perspectives compared to me and Isaiah being in public school. And so it's really about listening and getting all viewpoints, because as we said in the middle of the episode, wait a minute, we need a lot more voices in this conversation. So part two, definitely on deck. So what are your thoughts on, I mean, this was kind of us just being reactionary to what's happening and the conversations about race and racial injustice. What are your steps that you're taking right now to really engage your friends and talk about race and talk about colorism during this time? I think first and foremost, one of the things we talked about in the episode was how these conversations have to start at home and have to start early. And I've been reflecting a lot on what it means to be a black mom in America right now and to raise a black And so I've started having conversations with my husband around, you know, the books we want to expose Zeke to, the conversations we want to have with him, the ways in which we want him to celebrate and embrace the skin he's in. I think that, you know, that works for us right now and where we are and the fact that we're dealing with a young child. At the same time, I recognize that, you know, for the folks who are on the conversation, each of us is in like our mid thirties and we're just now having these conversations. So I think I would encourage folks to do what you did. You ask us a question, you pose it to the group and see, sit, ask if we were willing to have a conversation. And each of us made space to do that. I think there are a lot of resources on the web. Um, you know, you and I saw YouTube videos. There's also organizations like Colorism Healing. There's, a, you know, a quick Google search. I think I pulled up a hundred different questions wow. to ask about colorism. Um, so, I mean, find, find what you're comfortable with and maybe pick one or two of those questions and find somebody to have that discussion with in your family or in your friend group. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. You just have to start and figure it out mm-hmm. as you go, especially you being a new mom, just get started and navigate your way. For me, it's really about listening and being quiet to where I don't have to defend. I don't have to prove. I just have to listen and take in somebody else's experience. So I'm excited for part two. I'm excited for more perspective and uh, let's see what's in store. Great. Can't wait.
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. We hope you really took a lot away from the colorism conversation and that you will stay tuned for part two. As always, you can find us on our website at checkboxoutreach.com and on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach. Our podcast is also available on Spotify, iTunes, and on our website.